I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Xenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Hi, Jason. How are you doing? A bit tired. Oh, it's only week. The weekend's already over. I know, right? Monday morning. Da, da, da. But, well, I hope you spend the weekend reading a book, right? <laughs> I did a bit of reading. Yeah? What, what did you read, may I ask? I was reading The Years of Rice and Salt by Kim Stanley Robinson. Ooh, Under your exciting. instructions. <laughs> Absolutely strict instructions. Well, the reason I instructed you to read this is because I'm actually really excited about this book group thing um, that we've launched. Me too. And we had lots of response on Twitter and also on Discord. And today we've got Sarah and Claudia with us, who've been really, really active um, in terms of discussing the book with us on Discord. So Sarah, Claudia, welcome and hello. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. So international recording today, Canada, US, Portugal and the UK. Quite cool, but works really nicely in terms of time difference, <laughs> which <laughs> yep. is always good. Well, I guess, you know, let's let's talk about the book. Um, and I will start, if I may. So, well, the reason I chose this book is when Jason and I were kind of talking about the book group, um, we thought it would be nice to read something that is not directly disaster-y, but which would have a link to disasters. And when I was much younger, I used to read a lot of science fiction. And actually, I read Kim Stanley Robinson quite a few years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And then I've completely forgotten about him and I've completely forgotten about his books. And when the manifesto, the Prestige, Power and Forgotten Values manifesto was published, somehow, somewhere in the email, this um, his name, Kim Stanley Robinson's name, popped up again. And somebody mentioned the years of rice and salt in a sense that, you know, it's a completely different history and completely different context, you know, and how things and power would unfold and actually portrayed in a completely different way. So when we were choosing the book for the book group, um, and I had the privilege of choosing the first book, um, which was great. Um, I've decided to just make everyone read this book without realizing, first of all, that it's 772 pages. So <laughs> I do apologize for that. Um, and I do actually go to another book group and they have banned me from choosing books which are more than 300 pages. So I am known for <laughs> choosing really long books. Um, yeah, so sorry. <laughs> sorry to everyone who had to endure this book. But also, um, I wanted to read something different. I wanted to read fiction because it's not always uh, connected to the way we describe disasters. And I sort of hope that everybody would engage with me in reading it. And I'll, I'll share my opinion on the book a little bit later, but I'd love to hear from uh, Claudia first. What did you think about the book, generally? A few minutes ago, you were asking about the negatives about it, and I just cannot think about any negatives, to be honest. And I, I feel that I was thinking about this yesterday, just reflecting back on the book, and I think that it uh, actually begins from a very empty and even primitive stance, and then it kind of uh, evolves into a more vivid story. Like, not only there are like more characters as we move forward in the book, 
the stories also become more complex, um, almost the same way as that societies do. And this is what I found it very fascinating. You know, uh, as you as you as you go on and you read there more all these all these characters, and you begin to to get a little bit. Um, lost in the book because you you don't know who is who and because the names sometimes don't sound too fami familiar they're not latin names you know they're not christian names <laughs> um and i also enjoyed very much the bit about the bardo in in fact i think that that passage between the stories is very essential to the book because i think it's what makes this uh, evolution happen because there's this uh, there's this realization by the characters um of what it means um uh, to to be uh, alive and what is life for them and then they they evolve into something else and the next story and the next story so yeah these are like the maybe the highlights for me or the general idea about the book that I have. Yeah, great. I must admit, you know, I, I completely agree with you uh, with regards to the start. It kind of, it was, uh, it started with nothing. And I was a little bit worried thinking that if this is how it's going to continue, you know, then nobody will ever talk to me again. Um, but it did unfold really fast and rapidly. Sarah, what do you think? Yeah, maybe I'll just start off with, um, I was totally on board with this idea um, as soon as I saw you mention it on Twitter. Um, so I jumped right in. And then when I saw that the first book was um, was The Years of Rice and Salt, I ordered it um, without even seeing what it was initially. So when it arrived and I realized it was an alternate history, I was kind of taken aback at the beginning because <laughs> I was trying to, I was like, why are we reading this? Um <laughs> So it took me it took me sort of starting to read the book with my sort of disaster lens on um, to really see what this fictional alternate history could have in terms of uh, discussion around sort of disasters and and all these themes that you talk about on the on the podcast. Um, and there's actually quite a bit. So in terms of um, content, like you were mentioning, that's over 750 pages. So it was it was a long read. Um, but there's a lot of things that they talk about in terms of the rise and fall of civilizations and how um, disaster events um, like recurring floods, disease epidemics, earthquakes, um, sort of feed into some of those cycles of rise and fall. Um, obviously, the, the for folks who haven't read the book, right, it's it's basically talking about um, the whole premise is that the Black Plague um, has wiped out sort of 90% of, of Europeans. And so it's really looking at the uh, what the rest of the world does without that sort of European influence on history. Um, so definitely more of um, uh, Muslim, uh, Chinese, and sort of Indian um, influences on history over time. And that was really interesting to see how things were different, how things changed. Um, and I'm really hoping that we get to talk about the end of the book. So maybe spoilers for folks who haven't read the book and want to. Um, I'm really interested to talk about the end of the book potentially and where they end up after 750 pages and sort of 700 plus years of history, that in some ways they end up in a very similar place that we're in today. So I'd like to discuss that. This is the mess that we're going to end up in. 
Or maybe just history repeats itself, no matter who's in charge of history. Jason, what did you think? What you were just touching on right there is really interesting to me. The idea that I think was coming through that a lot of the same things or the same things would develop in a human society that was not influenced, that didn't have a kind of Eurocentric uh, development process. Because I think that's an interesting premise that, you know, there's some sort of endpoint that humans we're, we're always going to go to in, in terms of developing technology and um, violence and power and all of these things that we we kind of feel are or sometimes we frame them as being eurocentric processes that have been imposed on the world um, and i i mean my understanding is that this book kind of argues that these things would have developed anyway but different people would have been in power and different people would have uh, made discoveries and so on. Is that right to say? Yes. Yes. I, but I just don't feel like that um, there was or there would be any difference if uh, we in the West would have been alive anyway. Everything just sounds that it would remain the same, especially when you get towards the end of the book and they speak about, he speaks about the, the fourth great inequalities, and that's very much what we have today. Um, so it makes me question whether uh, the, the, the story would have been uh, completely different uh, without uh, you know, the Western civilization. I don't think so. I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but... Yeah, you know, I agree. And I think actually in the in chapter four in book um, four, Black Clouds, there is a phrase that uh, the, the paragraph goes, that the two biggest empires were both the strongest and the weakest at the same time. And then the, the strengths, um, so it's China and the Muslim world that described, and then in between them, the India uh, is trapped. And the, the Chinese power goes on, um, and the description is, you know, is quite detailed. But then the end of that par passage is that this power is a danger to all the other people on earth, despite various problems that Chinese bureaucracy poses. And isn't it interesting how when you become powerful, you become a problem for all, or a danger to all the other people on earth? Because I guess you want to sustain that power because you know your weaknesses. And to me, that came strongly in every single chapter, in every single book of this book. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think there's a lot of philosophy also in this book, um, which was very interesting as well. So it's not just telling this alternate history, but also having these discussions about, you know, power and place and and what it means to be human in, in some ways. Um, what you were just mentioning, Ksenia, reminded me of this... Um, uh, Chap, uh, sorry, this paragraph uh, in uh, the Widow Kang. Um, That's my that favorite. Book. That's my favorite part. Yes, <laughs> Widow Kang. Yeah. yeah, it was one of mine too. Um, so it's on uh, page four seventy five. Maybe I'll just read it. Um, so she's talking. This is sort of at the end, uh, at the end of her of her book, and she's just sort of looking back, I guess, on all the readings that she's done and the the 
compiling of, of sort of history and poetry. And she's looking back at this and she basically says, uh, my feeling is that until the number of whole lives is greater than the number of shattered lives, we remain stuck in some kind of prehistory, unworthy of humanity's great spirit. History as a story worth telling will only begin when the whole lives outnumber the wasted ones. That means we have many generations to go before history begins. All the inequalities must end. All the surplus wealth must be equitably distributed. Until then, we are still only some kind of gibbering monkey, and humanity, as we usually like to think of it, does not yet exist. So that was definitely just, that was one of those um, paragraphs among others that you just sort of read and you stop and you really think about. Um, And especially for, you know, us looking at, you know, we do a lot of studies around, you know, disaster studies and and what happens in societies. And and we deal with a lot of these questions of of inequality and and power dynamics um, in those very extreme situations. And I think this this definitely um, spoke to me um, sort of at a value level. Absolutely. And, you know, this is what I guess was fascinating, how much inequality was actually unpacked in this book. You know, it wasn't just inequality between kind of uh, genders. Um, He talked about disability. He talked about age. He talks about different races. And I wondered whether we are reading it from a very disastrous, disaster studies perspective and whether we see that. Or was it intentional and it's obvious to everyone? Yeah, maybe me that I'm not from disaster studies. Uh, <laughs> um, it, it's it still uh, made me think about that from that perspective, uh, especially comparing um, certain parts of the world uh, when he speaks about disasters, but I'll get there in, in a minute. I'll just uh, like to, to mention the two strong feminine characters of the story, which for me was Kang, as you said, and Budur as well. And it's interesting that Budur gets this uh, interest in archaeology. I actually did study archaeology. <laughs> so I kind of compared myself to the story, but it's interesting that she goes into archaeology as in a way to look at past societies and maybe look at what has been wrong, because uh, what um, Sarah is quoted comes before Buddha as a, a character, um, which is kind of interesting that she gets into um, uh, these uh, archaeology classes and Kirana then asks, yeah, it's important, but, you know, sto- stones don't tell us uh, things, but they actually do. <laughs> And they can tell us a lot of things. And I started thinking about this uh, from the perspective as well of a, a disaster, you know, how destruction can tell you something, what what the post-disaster can tell you uh, something, you know, the way you look at archaeology, maybe you can also look at a disaster and then start reconstruction from the present um, up until the past. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 f- I found it uh, really interesting, all this connection between past, present, and also they go into the future as well. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and the, the threads of vulnerability, inequality, uh, marginalization, but also, you know, urban planning, they kind of all came together, right, in the past, present, and the future. 
But those past passages between past and future were really, really clever. You know, it actually took me a while to realize that uh, this is about reincarnation. I don't know. It's probably just me. But it really took me about three books to think, oh, wow, okay, now I understand what's happening. Somehow I found it quite difficult to, um, to get it straight away. And that is such a clever way to show how actually this is all recreated. And well, this is what we, we do the same thing with risks, isn't it? We uh, bring our bias and then create exactly the same thing later on. I find it really interesting that the author has these really strong philosophies and ideas that are written in story. And as Ksenia will tell you, I'm not someone who reads a lot of fiction. I'm a real <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying. Guy. But it's, it's fascinating to see these strong ideas coming through in stories. Risk and vulnerability as things that maybe we can't overcome. I mean, is that something that I feel that he's arguing? It's just kind of inevitable in the way that humans engage with each other that we have have these problems what do you think personally i wonder if part of it comes back to our relationship with the natural world and sort of how we see our place in it um and maybe what the author is saying is that there's something in some ways i don't know universal about us living in the world but thinking we have some type of mastery over it um, I think this makes me, uh, it reminds me of a, a passage in, um, the Ocean Continents, um, book. Um, I'm on page 205. Um, and this is where, uh, Kim, he's, he has this moment, um, where he's, he's in the sort of new world. Um, and he's realizing that he's never really been in a natural place before. Um, and he, so it's saying um, he began to feel odd. He realized that he'd taken China for reality itself. China had seemed to him the world, and China meant people, built up, cultivated, parceled off ha by ha. It was so completely a human world that Kem had never considered that there might once have been a natural world different to it. But here was a natural land right before his eyes, full as could be with animals of every kind, and obviously very much bigger than Taiwan, bigger than China, bigger than the world he had known before. And so I think it's, is it perhaps, and this is a question, is it perhaps the fact that we grow up in these sort of constructed um, societies, um, that we, we grow up kind of with this idea that we can master the natural, that we can... Um, bring these natural forces within within our control and sometimes that that includes overlooking risk You know, this is interesting because I think, uh, Claudia, you reflected on this comment when we were having discussion on Discord. Um, and you said that this uh, realization of the natural world, you know, that Sarah has just described to us, um, it reminded you of another book by Clive Hamilton, right? And you said that in that book, Clive Hamilton argues that if we were anthropocentric enough, 
then we would actually understand better that it's our moral duty to look after the nature. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it completely. And I think that uh, adding to what S uh, Sarah said, sometimes not only is because we lived in this constructed societies, but because we're only looking at one way of the society, let's say it, um, and we tend not to uh, consider other forms of living, other other ideas, uh, you know, or consider or even accept. And um, maybe that might be um, the case why uh, sometimes it, it leads to uh, disaster construction, I would say, um, just a lack of understanding. Um, don't know what your thoughts are on this, but... Precisely that, you know, I'm trying to find the, the, the quote. Oh, okay. It's in book Nsara where the, the the characters talk about that lack of understanding and lack of wanting to understand. And there is a dialogue where I, I think they're talking about physical laws, you know, and what it is they know and what it is they don't know. And the dialogue goes that it's talk can be so good. It's teaching me so many things, not just about history, but what it all means. It sorts it, it sorts it out as we used to do in the harem. Exactly. What you talk all you want in the harem, but it's only in institutes that you can do science. Since you've bothered to come here, you might as well take advantage of what's offered. So Budur kind of emphasizes how while science is important, um, science forgets about people. Science forgets about asking people what they know. Definitely. <laughs> I think that's... Um... You, I think you often see that with, um, so after, after disaster events, you know, sometimes uh, you have organizations that come in and are trying to do uh, disaster relief, you know, and it's done from the perspective of we know what we're doing, um, let us help without asking people who have who have that lived experience what do you need right and so i think what you're getting that th at there is a bit of that disconnect which we see in a lot of different milieus between those trying to solve a problem without necessarily getting all the um all the perspectives that they need or recognizing that they might not be the right person um to start answering those those questions. And Kirana adds something to that. Well, not that I agree with this, um, <laughs> but she, uh, she suggests that uh, um, they as a group should be focusing on the future instead in history. And uh, there is this idea that the future cannot be known, but that is something that we make. And there is this, um, just an end of an expression, which is uh, what we do casts the threads in a particular direction and the picture in the tapestry changes accordingly. I find this very uh, fascinating um, because it explains how we actually uh, construct, um, you know, you could compare how we construct the disasters, right? How is it a, a social uh, construction um, that we speak so many times about that and how they are not natural. How important is it in this book that um, the characters are kind of normal and just uh, uh, like not the most 
famous people in that in that story? How important for the author do you think it is to convey the ideas through normal people's stories? Yeah, I think very much uh, because I think the author just uses fiction as a way to express his feelings towards the current state of the world. Um, and for me, um, I I know Iran. I've been there twice, and the passages that speak about Iran. Um, have very much to do what happens today uh, in in Iran. Uh, for example, they they speak um, they speak of the beautiful. Uh, they have this beautiful poem on page six uh, seven nine. I'm not going to read it, but it makes reference to Iranian culture and its most famous poets. And it, you know, it's a, actually a society that has managed to preserve the arts and culture uh, so well in a way that I no longer see in the West uh, when I'm there. And that really touches me. Um, also, the people are very different in their their values. I could compare, you know, um, the story of Kang and the way that uh, she um, ends up risking her life to protect a person that she didn't know but turned up in her doorstep. Um, you know, he um, he makes reference to a lot of uh, human uh, values in this in this history, and and then still still about uh, this part of uh, about Iran, there is a part that speaks of a, a swift river, and this swift river that they talk about in Esfahan is the Zayandeh River, and I don't know if you know, but the Zayandeh River has been uh, dried. Um, for a few years, except for this year, because Iran has built around 600 dams in the past 30 years. This has been a, such a disaster for Esfahan, but this year has actually rained so much that they have managed to send water again in, in this river. Um, so I find it uh, very interesting and to compare to reality. And then he speaks about the protests. You know, Iran just had some protests a few weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, it, for me, it's fascinating knowing the country and just thinking about everything the author is saying. He must have done an incredible amount of research, you know, in, in putting this book together, because I had exactly the same feeling about China. And I know China very well. I lived there for a long time and I studied China as kind of my first degree. Um, I can I I just can't even imagine how a person can learn so much about so many cultures because it's not this is not he's not talking from his kind of imagination you know and I think this is what China or Iran is he actually knows his stuff right yeah I totally yeah I think he does <laughs> I think he's been to these places and more than yeah he actually knows the history and the politics and you know he knows how people live somehow. And yeah, I, I, you know, I want to pick up his brain and learn all about this. It's so interesting. Yeah, there's something very fascinating about how he was able to basically weave this entire alternate history um, and to have it make sense and to have it right. feel as though it could be real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, he, there is a, a, a quote um, I made note of, which is very interesting. He says, humanity's behavior was still based on old laws, which determined 
determined how food and land and water and surplus wealth were owned, how the labor of the eight billions was owned. If these laws did not change, the living shell of the earth might well be wrecked and inherited by seagulls and ants and cockroaches. (laughs) And it reminds me of my philosophy teacher that tells me that small actions might be important. Um, Now speaking in terms of climate change, which is where he, uh, the field that he teaches, and he says that until you change uh, ethics, economics and politics, it will be very hard to change anything else. With the motif of having these characters be reincarnated life after life, right? They're basically going the entire book trying to change in a way that they can escape the cycle of reincarnation. And it takes them, what, a thousand years to change, right? So do you think that that's perhaps the author also commenting on how difficult it can be um, to sort of come to profound realizations about the self and to um, really change at a fundamental level? To me, yes. The answer to the question is yes. And I, to me, the reflection of that was in book five, I think, where uh, they're talking about Hidonosony? I'm not sure how to pronounce the word. Hodinosony? Um, and so this is kind of a history of nameless actions by nameless people. And I found it fascinating because this history can only unfold if the society exists without any other societies next to them, right? So they kind of, they don't have hierarchy or it's more matriar- matriarchal society um, than anything else. And I guess, Sarah, what you're, the question you're posing can kind of be reflected in this utopian setting, but nowhere else, right? Right. I think it's a, a call. Um, I mean, I mean, he urges us to think about our actions. You know, just really think: what What are you doing with your life? You know, um, and just take care about everything that you do. Um, I think that's what all these uh, passages through the Bardo are. And for me, that's probably the most interesting part of how this book has been put together. And also the frustrations, because you definitely feel that from the characters as well, right? They're getting really frustrated (laughs) at not being able to make any progress, which I think we, we often all feel at times. Yeah, just in 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 this one life. <laughs> Imagine what will happen if we have to travel through how many eight lives, you know? Oh God, exactly. uh, I, I, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> I had a question, the disaster-related question. So you know, in Widow Can, this is pretty much the only book where there is a direct ref- reference to a disaster. So the flood happens, right? And they're going through the flood water in order to um, to help a person and then also to evacuate. How did you feel about it? I was, um, as a kind of disaster studies person, I was really worried about them um, in, in a way that they were responding to a disaster. 
<laughs> you know, they did everything that they were not supposed to be doing, really, um, in floodwaters. <laughs> Would you not climb a chair? Well, I would climb the chair, but I wouldn't really go against the flow, um, you know, and kind of in a, on the road, which was muddy before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just fascinating. They they kind of chose the, the, the worst path to evacuation. <laughs> um, but I guess they were trying to help other people as well. Yeah, I think it was, um, they weren't prepared, right? So yeah. they didn't seem to have anything uh any sort of action plan um <laughs> or you know sort of their their emergency preparedness kit to just grab and and run with um so i think that was one of those pieces it also didn't seem that there was you know sort of an early warning system or any type of neither yeah um yeah so they didn't really have much of a of an emergency management structure in place as far as i could tell but it just made me laugh you know kind of because jason and i on the podcast we've been talking so many times about the representation of disaster in fiction um be that Uh a movie you know or be that a book and how i guess for dramatic effects um you really want your characters to suffer um, but really, in real life, we don't really want that to happen at all. Especially because she was pregnant, right? Right, yeah. Yes. And she forgot her son, which was not that important after all. <laughs> but uh, I, I think the, this story just reminded me of we had really bad flash floods in Madeira in 2010 that killed about 100 people. And I remember the story about the sky just went uh, into the literally the, the where the water was going through uh, down the hill he just went in and he got projected for two kilometers he went inside uh, the water stream and he broke only a leg you know it's two kilometers you know just uh, revolving on concrete um it it actually reminded me of these flash floods um so it could have been exactly like today no one's prepared sometimes. I think also sometimes you, you know, we sort of laugh at the widow Kang, but, um, and forgetting her son, but you don't know how you're going to react in a situation until you're in it. Right. And you don't know, um, you know, I think we often think that we're going to, you know, be able to handle something rationally, um, that, you know, we're going to think of our loved ones that we're going to do X, Y, or Z. Um, but we don't know that. And I think that's really one of the things that we need to be better um, at expressing and explaining to the public is that, you know, the preparedness actions that you're taking, um, they're not just for you, they're for your family. And you need to put some thought into this because you're dealing with with something that you don't, you can't know um, what the outcomes are going to be and you can't know how you're going to react in a situation like that unless you prepare. And I think part of preparing allows people to build that muscle memory to say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I know that I need to grab these papers. I know that I need to grab this. I know I need to grab my medication or, or whatever you need. Um, and I think that really needs to be part of our um, messaging a bit more. Yeah. And I think this brings us nicely to actually the last book, um, The First Years, where there is some reflection on preparedness and there is some reflection on future and the past. And, you know, this was actually the only book that um, I I didn't know how it's going to end. And it ended, it was a happy ending to an extent, right? Compared to all the other books. (laughs) 
So what what do you think? Why do you think this was the last book and why was it framed in a way that it was? Just thinking uh, about the book itself, um, I've written some uh, passages, I took note of some passages uh, and I particularly liked what he says that the gold and silver come from the earth and the earth belongs to all of us and that there can no longer be hierarchies uh, like those that have oppressed us for so long. And I think that... um, this is like a big conclusion from what uh, from all those societies that he describes um in the previous books you know just in a way to say that we no longer want to uh, continue with the status quo um yeah mhm i'm also intrigued as to why the last book is called the first years what are your thoughts around that I don't know. I guess he's just kind of bringing it um, back to where where we are now. And, you know, this is the only book where they actually reject reincarnation. Mm-hmm. And I wonder whether there is um, some kind of link to that, you know, because it's kind of clearly stated that, well, reincarnation doesn't exist, you know, there is no hell or heaven. Um, and you need to kind of almost imagine that no matter what it is you do, that when you die, you will be gone forever, gone utterly. But really, we kind of know, right, from the whole book that this is not the case, that this will all come back to where, where it all started. So I wonder this, whether this is the new cycle and the girl that appears right at the, ba- at the end will be the new character, you know, to continue um, the history, so to say. Mm-hmm. Or even the fact that the last, right, the last word in the book is Kali, right? Yeah. Which is sort of the, the Indian goddess for... Uh, or Hindu goddess, rather, for uh, of death. So that sort of casts a bit of a a bit of a shadow over the ending, also, right? Is that basically saying that like this is the end, right? This is where it ends now, and maybe the end as a new beginning. Yeah, I didn't know that actually. I didn't know that it's a Hindu goddess. That's really interesting. And um, and you mentioned you quoted something um, about when uh, history actually starts. I was just thinking that maybe these first years are when he can say that history actually begins, you know, with this new way of thinking and and looking at humanity and doing things uh, differently and avoiding those inequalities, you know, those fourth great inequalities that he mentioned before. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's this passage about history. Um, It's page 764. History, he would say then, it's a hard thing to get at. There is no easy way to imagine it. The earth rolls around the sun 365 and quarter days a year for year after year. Thousands of these years have passed. Meanwhile, a kind of monkey kept on doing more things, increasing in number, taking over the planet by means of meanings. Eventually, much of the matter and life on the planet was entrained to their use and then they had to work out what they wanted to do beyond merely staying alive then they told each other other stories of how they had to go where and they were and had happened and what it meant and that is what history is isn't it <laughs> it's kind of really nicely captured in five sentences yeah so lots of questions i guess have been posed by this book and it's been absolutely great talking to Sarah and Claude today. Thank you so much for calling in and chatting to us. Thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah, it's been really fun. I'm looking forward to seeing what book number two is. Just to remind everybody, Disasters Deconstructed is available wherever you get your podcasts. We're releasing every week on Monday mornings this season. 
and hope you're enjoying season two. Follow us and tweet us at DisastersDecon, and we're also on Instagram at DisastersDecon. Disasters Decon.